Would you turn with me, please, to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, John 19. We've uh, come now to the events in Jesus' life that Paul describes as the gospel which he preached. There were three elements in that gospel, the fact that Jesus died and was buried and was raised again. These are the the facts of our faith, the, the crucial elements of, uh, of our belief. Our text this morning focuses on the first two of those three elements, our Lord's death and his burial. It's important, I think, to realize that uh, this is the testimony of an eyewitness. According to verse 35, the one who has seen, that would be John, has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Either John wrote that in his customary anonymous style or his uh, secretary wrote that about John, but in any case, uh, the point is that these this is the testimony of an eyewitness, someone who was there beneath the cross and witnessed these uh, these events. Normally, the value of any story that we hear from history is the credibility of the witness. If, if the witness is reliable, then, then we can believe that the story actually happened. I uh, hang around with fishermen a lot, as you know, and they are notoriously untrustworthy. I count myself among them. I always think of uh, Paul's comment about the Cretans. He writes to Titus and he says, Cretans are gluttonous and they're lazy and they're liars. And that's a good description of fishermen. Uh, Clean Baker had an article in his little news sheet on hunting and fishing last week entitled, How to Lie Good. Uh, fishermen know that if you tell someone you caught a five-pound trout, the listener will automatically deduct two pounds. Fishermen, therefore, should always add extra pounds to every fish they catch to allow for the deductions. <laughs> the bigger the lie, the more you should add. But uh, John is not uh, he's not fabricating the story. He saw it. He was an eyewitness. And and probably his, uh, his scribe, his amanuensis, said, we know that this man is true. He's, he's a credible witness. He's the kind of person that, that you can trust. Let's begin reading with verse 17. They, that is the Roman soldiers, took Jesus, therefore... And he went out of Jerusalem, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. A friend of mine uh, passed on to me this last week an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association about the physical aspects of the death of Jesus Christ. That was the title of the article. A striking article about the physiological effects of, of crucifixion. It was a very instructive article. It was also very sobering to, uh, to see again the extent of, of the suffering of our Lord as a result of this death by, by crucifixion. But it struck me as I turned from that article and read John's account how spare John's account is. Uh, he doesn't talk much about our Lord's suffering. He simply says he was crucified. 
The reason is John had some other things that he wanted to say about the crucifixion. He could have elaborated on the trauma and, and the, the excruciating pain that our Lord went through, but he doesn't focus on that aspect of his suffering. Uh, it, it, there, it, I get the impression almost of snapshots. John saw this, and then he saw this, and then he saw this, and he saw something else. And he wants us to look at what he saw. What we're doing is looking at the cross through the eyes of an eyewitness, through John's eyes. Now, there's a reason for that. John is simply carrying out his theme. The reason he wrote the book, he tells us, is so we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, as I've said before, Son of God is not a title of deity. It's a messianic title. John's concern is to establish that Jesus was the King of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel, the adopted Son of God, in the sense that kings were adopted by, by the gods in those days, but, it, but specifically the unique, only begotten Son of God, the Messiah. And everything about the book is designed to, to convince us that that's so. Now, I think the Gospel of John is written mostly for Jews. Jewish unbelievers. It's an apologetic, a... Uh, an evangelistic tract written to unbelieving Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's true because John keeps going back into the Old Testament and pulling out aspects of the Old Testament which would only be known to Jews, and he very often translates from Greek into Hebrew or Aramaic so the Jewish readers would understand what he's talking about. And I think that's what John is doing in this his view of the cross. He's convincing Jews again that this man who hung on the cross is nothing less than the Messiah of, of Israel, the one predicted in, in the Old Testament. Now, there's some very interesting things that we need to note, some things that John saw that the other gospel writers uh, overlooked for one reason or another. They, they weren't a part of the theme they were, they were developing. The first thing John saw is Jesus going out. He underscores that idea. He went out. He went out of the city. There's a reason for that. In, under Old Testament law, the carcasses of animals that were sacrificed were taken outside of the city and burned. They were taken to the refuse dump, and they were burned. The picture is the, uh, that of the priest confessing the sins of the city, the citizens of the city, on the head of the animal. The animal then was slain for the sins of the people, and this defiled body on which all the sin had been placed is taken outside of the city and burned. The uh, writer of Hebrews makes uh, uh, that point exactly in chapter 13 when he writes, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That was important to the writer of Hebrews. It was important to John. He saw... He saw Jesus going outside of the gate. Furthermore, he says that he was crucified on, uh, the place, at the place of the skull. And then he translates into Aramaic, Golgotha. Golgotha, the, the Aramaic word Golgotha or Golgotha, a little hard to transliterate into Greek. So he did the best he could. But it's, it's the word that, that describes a dome-shaped structure, which was a, evidently a prominent landmark in Jerusalem. And any Jew reading this book would almost certainly have visited Jerusalem and would know where Golgotha was. 
You might not know where the place of the skull was because that was the name, that was the Greek name given to the place. But he would immediately recognize the name Golgotha, place of the skull. See, Jewish men were required to go up to Israel on pilgrimages on a regular basis. And more than once they had gone up and, and when they would read place of the skull, they, well, they might not know where that is, but they would know exactly where Golgotha was. Golgotha was on a spur of Mount Zion. A little ridge that goes off toward the west. We don't know exactly the location. It was somewhere a little bit to the, to the west of the city, now where the old city is located in Jerusalem. But it was on a part of Mount Zion. Now, if you visit Jerusalem today and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Valley and you'll see the kind of a flat pat platform there and, and uh, the Muslim uh, uh, mosque, the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock is located there on that platform. It's located right on Mount Zion. Actually, Mount Zion is a complex of little hills on which Jerusalem is located. And if you look just a little bit beyond the wall, there's the temple platform and then old Jerusalem. And a little bit beyond the wall, there's another little hill that would be, that would be Golgotha, which was a part of Mount Zion. Now, that would be important to a Jew reading this, this account because he would realize that Golgotha is a part of of Zion, and you would know from the Old Testament that Zion was the place where God intended to make salvation. Joel, the prophet, puts it, uh, puts it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the whom, whom the survivors, whom the Lord is, is calling. See, Mount Zion is a geographical location. It's a place name that anyone could identify, but it also symbolically stood for the place of salvation. So when John sees Jesus going outside the camp on his way up to Mount Zion, every Jew reading this book would know that he was, that John was intending to point out that that Jesus went up to Mount Zion to provide salvation. And then John saw Jesus carrying the wood on his back, carrying a cross. And that was important to him because he would think back 2,000 years to the time when Abraham and Isaac made their way up that same hill and Isaac was carrying the wood of the sacrifice. You remember the story? Isaac, you know, was, was Abraham's son and... Uh, they made their way up to uh, what then was called the region of Moriah, the mountains of Moriah. Those are the hills on which Jerusalem is located. And Isaac and his father, as they made their way up that hill, uh, Isaac said to his father, Father, here's the wood. We have the fire. You have the knife. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. And when they got to the top of the hill... Abraham bound Isaac and he put him on the wood which Isaac had borne up that hill. And he started to plunge that flint knife into Isaac's chest and the angel restrained him. And God provided a substitute, as you know, a ram that was caught in, in the bush. And the ram was sacrificed as a substitute for his son. And in memory of that event, Abraham named that place Moriah. Moriah means the Lord will provide. And someday Abraham knew God would provide salvation on that mountain. Except in, in, on, on that particular occasion, the angel would not restrain the father. He would kill his own son who would substitute for the human race. Now you see, when John sees Jesus bearing his wood, dragging the cross up the side of Mount Zion, he would remember Isaac. 
And he would remember that that was the place where God had determined to, to make salvation. Verse 19 says that Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Uh, therefore, this inscription, many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of Jews, king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Uh, it was the custom in those days to, uh, to put an inscription at the top of the cross to indicate what uh, the crime of which the person who was crucified was was convicted. The Romans called that a titulus. We get our word title from it. That's the irony of this whole thing. They would put a title up there. It would say John Smith, murderer. Or uh, Sam Greenberg, thief. The name of the person and then the crime of which they were, uh, they were uh, for which they were being condemned. That was the title that was placed at the top of, of the cross. And for some reason, the Roman governor himself put this inscription on the cross. The Jews came to him and said, don't, don't say this is the king of the Jews. Say, he said I'm the king of the, of the Jews. And uh, Pilate said, uh, using that phrase that we often use to refer to unchangeable, unchanged things, what I have written, I have written. And John saw the fine irony in that. Pilate didn't do it because he believed that Jesus was the king of the Jews. That's the odd thing. Pilate, Pilate was the one who raised the question, what is truth? But unwittingly he, unwittingly, he had written truth. This is the king of the Jews. And it was written in a public place and in all the languages of the Roman Empire in that day. Most of the people that lived in the Roman Empire could read either Latin or Greek or Aramaic. And it was in a public place. If you go to Jerusalem today, there are a couple of locations uh, that are pointed out as possible sites for the crucifixion. One is just a little farther West than the, than the gate, the, the present uh, wall of the old city. And one is inside the old city, at, at, close to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But uh, both of them are in, in public places and would have been in, in, in Jesus' day. Uh, if, you, if you visit Gordon's Calvary in present-day Jerusalem, you look off to the left, and the tomb is in the garden uh, just uh, off to the north, and then above it is a, a cemetery. An Arab cemetery, which was the, is pointed out as Golgotha, the place of the skull. If you turn to your right, look down, there's a bus station right down below you. There are honking horns, and you, you can smell uh, carbon monoxide. Well, you can't smell carbon monoxide, but you can smell the smoke and, and the noise and the clatter and the racket. It's, it's right on the edge of town, right in a bustling part of the Arab neighborhood. And so it was in Jesus' day. He was crucified in a public place on a major thoroughfare. The title was in languages anyone could read. Everybody could see that he was king of the Jews. Pilate did it to irritate the Jews, most probably. Hard-headed, hard-hearted as he was to the end. John says, it's truth. He is the king of the Jews. And uh, Peter's... Or John's mind would have gone back to Isaiah 9. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll shoulder that responsibility. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the one who makes peace. That's what a king is supposed to do. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. That is nothing outside his rule. On the throne of David, one of the descendants of David, as David had been promised, would sit on the throne of Israel forever. On the throne of David and over his king to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, never ceases to be king. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. John looked at that title and, and it, it just underscored for him again that this was indeed the king of the Jews. Verse 23, John looked from the title down to the foot of the cross and he saw four soldiers down there on a blanket. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, notice, they didn't say this. A quotation mark uh, closes the, the quotation after the word, Whose it shall be. John said this. The soldiers had no idea they were fulfilling prophecy. They didn't even know the prophecy. But John noted that what they were doing was actually, was actually a, a fulfillment of what had, been, what had been predicted long ago. It's, this is that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my, for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. The clothing of, of men who were crucified was one of the perquisites of, of the soldiers who did the crucifying. And they were dividing up Jesus' garments, and they came to his, to his uh, tunic. And it was seamless, and they didn't want to tear it and ruin it, so they, they cast lot for it. They, they rolled ice. And John saw that, and he realized that that was a fulfillment of something that David had said a thousand years before. His mind went back to what we would call Psalm 22, one of, one of David's songs, one of his, his poems. David is using hyperbole. He's talking about some experience that he was, that he was having that just drained him of strength and, and energy. He felt the way he, the way he wrote. And uh, David himself and, and subsequent writers of Scripture and the readers of Scripture knew that David was going way beyond his own experience. The Holy Spirit was leading him to say things that, that were true not only of himself in part, but would be, in true, would be true of the Lord Jesus. He said this, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years before, David wrote those words, and, and John made the connection. He saw these, these pagan, unbelieving soldiers unwittingly fulfilling this, this prediction. Jesus died according to the Scriptures. 
And then, then John looked away from the four soldiers at the foot of the cross off in the distance, and he, he saw four women. But they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, that would be Mary, of course, his mother's sister, who was Salome, who was the mother of John, who's writing this account, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who's, who's generally believed to be the wife of Joseph's brother, who would be Jesus' aunt, and Mary Magdalene. Mary of Magdala, the, the, the social misfit, the outcast from whom Jesus had, had cast out, had exercised uh, seven demons. These four women stood at the foot of the cross. Uh, Dorothy Sayers points out that it's no accident that, that women were the last to leave the cross. They were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb because they realized that this was a man like no other man. Indeed, she says there has been none other, uh, no one other, no one like him. And uh, John sees the soldiers, and he, he sees the women standing at, at the cross. And his attention must have focused on Mary's mother. John probably saw Mary standing off by herself, and he remembered Simeon's words to her when she dedicated the child in the temple. She brought the boy when he was to be dedicated, and Simeon saw Jesus, recognized him as the Messiah, and said to her, A sword someday is going to pierce your heart. And John must have realized how heartbroken Mary was to see her son on the cross. And he went over to her side and Jesus saw John and Mary standing together. And he said to his mother, Dear woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. I don't know why Jesus didn't hand over his mother to his brothers and sisters. They probably weren't even there. They didn't believe on him. They had rejected him. Uh, and they did reject him until after the... Uh, after the resurrection. But for whatever reason, he saw John's compassion and he handed his mother over to over to John. And I, I couldn't help but think as I read through this passage this week of those those years that Mary lived with John. John lived on to be almost 100 years of age. Uh, probably some 60 years or more after this. And we don't know how long Mary lived, but she, she lived with him for a long period of time. And, and I thought of John watching her around the house growing older realizing that that was that was the mother of of his lord and john includes this incident because it was so so important to him he took her into his into his house and in verse 28 after this jesus knowing all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled said i am thirsty a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and, and gave up his spirit. There are a number of things that Jesus said from the, from the cross. We, we refer to these as the, as the seven last words. He said of the men who crucified him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said to the thief who was crucified with him, This day you'll be with me in, in paradise. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to John, Behold your mother. He said to God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, My Lord, my Lord, why have you, have you forsaken me? The, the uh, uh, cry of, of uh, dereliction, which John does not include. And then the fifth word from the cross, uh, 
I'm thirsty. Remember the passage I read before in Psalm 22 where he said his tongue was cleaving to the, to the roof of his mouth. His mouth was dry. He'd been hanging on the cross for anywhere from three to five hours by this time. He had refused the, uh, the drink of drugged wine that was normally given to those that were crucified. And now one of the soldiers took uh, some, of, uh, some of their own store of wine, evidently very cheap wine. It was more vinegar than it was wine, and soaked a sponge in it, put it on a, a, a little shaft of hyssop, and put it up to his, his lips. And uh, John remembered what David had said in Psalm 69, a thousand years before. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am so sick, and I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. David is thinking symbolically of, of mistreatment by, uh, by those that should have comforted him and, and, and ministered to him. Instead, he says, they gave me gall, something bitter to eat, and vinegar something better to drink, and that's precisely what happened at the foot of the cross. When he cried out, uh, the soldiers put vinegar on a sponge and put it up to his lips, and John said that's exactly what David was talking about in Psalm 69. He died according to the Scriptures. And when he received the, the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I want you to note he did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work that I came to do is, is finished. They found little scraps of papyrus, receipts, apparently, with this word written across the bottom. To telestai in Greek, one word, which means paid in full. It's finished. It's consummated. It's completed. The work that I came to do is done. And he bowed his head and he died. I, I thought of the uh, famous Greek runner, Pheidippides, who ran from... Marathon to Athens to announce the victory of the Greeks over the Persians and ran the hundred miles from Marathon all the way down to the city of Athens in less than 48 hours, rushed into the city, cried out one word, Nike, victory, dropped over dead. And our Lord ran the race for 32 years, did precisely what the Father had called him to do, did only what the Father told him to do. I said, I, He said, I just do what the Father I, I speak what the Father speaks to me. I do what the Father tells me to do. And now it was the Father's will to bruise him. And he had gone through the cross. And he had made salvation. And now he could. there's this cry of victory. My, it's finished. It's done. Salvation has, uh, has been made. And so we've come to the first part of the gospel. The first element of the gospel. He died according to the scriptures. And John wants us to realize that this death was real. It, our Lord didn't merely faint and pass out from shock and, and fatigue. He was, he was unquestionably dead. And so he, he tells us that's so in verses 31 and 37, but in doing so he brings in another element of Christ's death according to the scriptures. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. People die 
from crucifixion as a result of shock and asphyxia. Uh, it normally takes anywhere from uh, hours, five to six hours, to several days. And uh, if they wanted to hasten the death of someone that was crucified, they broke their legs. The reason being, if you've ever tried to hang from a bar and breathe, it's very difficult because your, your chest is set in an uh, inhalation position and you, you can't push the air out. And it's very, very difficult to get a, get a breath. And so they put a little uh, platform under their feet so they could push up to take a breath. But then the pain in their feet would be so extreme they'd have to drop back down on their hands. And then to take another breath, they'd have to push back up. And, and in order to hasten death, they would break their legs so they couldn't push off and they would suffocate. Their respiration would be hindered to the point where they'd just asphyxiate and die. And that's what they intended to do to the Lord. But coming to Jesus, when they, they saw he was already dead, he, he, there was this cry of victory. It's finished. And he bowed his head. And one of the other gospel writers tells us, he said to the Father, in your hands I, I dismiss my spirit. Our Lord didn't, the cross didn't kill our Lord. He said to Pilate, no one takes my life. Uh, he, he had the power to, to, to retain it or to give it back to God. It's our Lord who dismissed his life. The cross didn't kill him. And when the soldiers came, they were surprised that he was, that he was dead. It had only been something like three to five hours. And so they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. That is, blood and pericardial fluid from the, from the lance wound. And John says, or John's scribe says, He who has seen is born witness, and his witness is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. He's either referring to the, the fact that Jesus was undeniably dead, he saw the proof of it, he saw the blood and the, and the serum, or he's simply saying that he's witnessing that he was pierced, because that's so important. Because... The scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 36, For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. According to the Old Testament, they were prohibited from breaking any of the bones of the animals that they were to, uh, to sacrifice and eat. And there's no good reason for that in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the fact that the bones were, were not broken seems almost irrelevant. In Exodus, with reference to the Passover feast, Moses said, You're to eat the lamb inside your house. Don't eat any of it outside the house. And then he brings in something that's totally irrelevant. He says, And don't break any of its legs. Doesn't make any sense in the Old Testament. But it kept coming up. Every time a law concerning the sacrifice was given, Instructions were very precise and very clear. Do not break its legs. Why? Well, because it all prefigures the coming of our Lord. His legs were not broken. Instead, his side was, was pierced. And John says there's another scripture that we ought to ponder. They look on him whom they pierced. A little less than 500 years before the prophet Zechariah wrote, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace 
and of supplication, that is, pleading for grace, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is God speaking. Yahweh, the God of Israel. He says, God will pour out a spirit of grace and a spirit of pleading for grace so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And then he does something very ungrammatical. He switches the pronoun. It doesn't make any sense until you understand that we're talking about about Jesus who is a man and yet God himself. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. John says, I I looked up at the cross and I saw that spear go home and I, I realized that this was exactly what Zechariah was talking about. That they will look upon him whom they have pierced. The soldiers did it unwittingly. They didn't plan it this way. It was done according to the Scriptures. These things came to pass that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Now we turn from the first element of the Gospel that Jesus died according to the Scriptures to the burial of Jesus. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea is a town about uh, just a few miles from Jerusalem, (coughs) about 20, 20 miles away, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. Normally, the bodies of men that were condemned to die on a cross were taken down and buried in a common grave. Jesus would have been buried with the other malefactors, the two transgressors that were crucified on either either side of, of his cross. But Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and who had voted against uh, Jesus' death, the, the, the Sanhedrin had voted for his death. The other, one of the other gospel writers tell, tells us that Joseph had the courage to vote against it. He'd been a secret disciple of Jesus all along. But now he comes out of the closet and he announces himself and he goes to Pilate and asks permission to take the body. And Nicodemus came along with him. Nicodemus, uh, we know about from John 3, who came to Jesus by night, who had also been a secret disciple. Now he... He, he declares himself, Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, uh, about a hundred pounds weight. It's an enormously costly amount of, of perfume and spices. They didn't embalm bodies in those days, at least the Jews didn't. They, they anointed the body with spices and they wrapped them in, in linen uh, wrappings. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You would expect Jesus to be buried in a common grave in Gehenna, in the the city garbage dump. But he was spared from that burial, and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had, had yet been laid. So he was spared the defilement of being buried with other dead bodies. According to Psalm 16, there was the promise that that God would not permit his Holy One to see corruption. And it's also, I think, uh, John makes it, it's important that John notes that all this happened in a garden. The whole thing began in a garden. That's how, that's how the human race got into this mess in the first place. And now in a garden. 
the, 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 the problem is solved. The solution comes. There was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That was important to John. He wants to tell us that because he remembered a prediction in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 9. Again, 8th century B.C., 700 years before Christ, Isaiah wrote, He was assigned, He, Messiah, the suffering servant, He was assigned a grave alongside the wicked, but a rich man in his tomb. Now that sort of thing couldn't be contrived. The Jews knew that there might be some attempt to try to artificially fulfill some of these prophecies. They could have blocked it, but nothing could block it because God was sovereignly fulfilling these Old Testament pictures and shadows and previews. These ideas that are found in, in shadow in the Old Testament, which, which, which are real in the New Testament. They become reality there. It's interesting. If you have an old translation of this passage in Isaiah 53, it will read something like this. He was assigned his grave with the wicked. That is, they planned to bury him in a common grave with, with the other malefactors. But with a rich man in his deaths, Actually, it's his death, and that's always been a problem to, to grammarians because the noun is plural, and it didn't make any sense. What does, what does it mean? He's, he's, with, with a rich man in his deaths. That's, that's not the way, that's normally, that's not what you would expect in the Hebrew language. In 1947, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they, they came to this passage. There are very, very few changes. In the, in the, the differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the manuscripts of Isaiah that, that we had up up to that point are minimal, hardly any differences at all. But there was one difference here, just a difference in spelling, difference of a couple of words. The Dead Sea Scroll read, he was assigned a grave alongside the wicked, but in a rich man's tomb. And they know that's the proper reading. That's the oldest reading. Now, that, that sort of thing didn't happen by accident. You see, he died according to the scriptures he was buried according to the scriptures that that's why i say as i as i look back through chapter 19 that that john is simply following out its, his theme to his logical conclusion he told us he wrote this book to convince us that jesus is the messiah the son of god and as i said this book i believe was written for jews to convince them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. The Roman authorities crucified Jesus on Mount Zion, the place on which the prophets said salvation would be provided. He went up like Isaac, carrying his wood. He was the sacrifice which Isaac prefigured. Pilate announced to the world that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He wouldn't retract his title. And though he did it mainly to upset the Jews, he unwittingly wrote truth. The soldiers divided his garments, gave him vinegar to drink, and pierced his side rather than broke his legs, just as the Old Testament said they would. And, Jesus, and Joseph of Arimathea buried him in a rich man's tomb, just, just as the Old Testament signified. That's what Paul means when he says, I, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament prefigured it. The Scriptures spoke of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John, standing at the foot of the cross, saw those those things that were happening to Jesus, and he realized that he was being crucified as the Scriptures indicated. He was buried as the Old Testament uh, predicted he would. And John is saying to us, I want you to understand, I was there, I saw it, I'm reliable, it's true, it happened. It's a fact. Those are the facts of our faith. That's what we base our belief upon. We know that we've been saved from our sin because he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Uh, one day when Harry Truman was president of the United States, he was taking a nap in an upstairs bedroom in the Blair House. And a number of desperate men broke into one of the downstairs rooms, and there was a running gun battle with the Secret Service men who were there to protect him. And uh, one of them was killed, one of the men protecting the president. Afterwards, Truman wrote, It's a strange thing to know that you're alive because another man has died. I'll never forget what he's done for me. And uh, I, I hope we can't forget. It really happened. It's truth. It's history. As one of the creeds of the church puts it, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We can point to a time in history when it actually happened. And he did it for us. And I thought of that little chorus that we used to sing, After all he's done for me. After all he's done for me. How can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all he's done for me? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this reminder that this whole thing is true. It really did happen. It's not a figment of John's imagination. It's not something that the church made up later on in order to justify a set of beliefs that they wanted to cling to. It, it really happened. And we need to go back again and again to this story and, and remember that it, that it really did happen. It's true. The Old Testament predicted that it would occur, and, and now as we look back to the events, we know that it did happen. In our, in our world and in time, our time. Lord, we as a response simply want to, to give you our hearts as a result of your mercy to us. We offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. We want you to have our lives, our minds, our bodies, everything that we are. We thank you so much for coming and dying and being our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name.